I think the other thing that we're we're thinking through, um, besides even thinking about kind of building community, is um, the different ways that we can continue to support the team. So uh, one thing that uh, is actually currently going on is manager training, just taking a proactive approach to kind of building that psychological, like psychologically safe space for for teams. Um, because as we do continue to grow into different countries, um, different communication styles, different ways of giving, receiving feedback, it's going to be so key to to kind of helping um, that foundational culture that we've we've built. Hello, my name is Luke Eaton and welcome to Seed Scaling So Far podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Jen Paxton. She's the VP of People at Smile.io. Smile.io were founded in 2012. Uh, they had a major rebound in 2017 and now they are the world's largest reward program provider. We talk about everything from acquisitions, comms, uh, hyperscale growth and uh, what it's like to set up a fully remote first business. So if that's something that you're doing currently at work, uh, then definitely give this one a listen. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so uh, Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today on the Scaling So Far podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and thanks for spending the time with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Luke. I'm excited to chat. Super. Well, I've got I've got so many questions. I think we're going to have to, I'm going to get slapped on the wrist if it's more than an hour. So I'm going to try and be a little bit more terse than I usually am. Um, but for the sake of our listeners, uh, so uh, you're uh, VP of people at Smile, but before we get into the company, how about you tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I have been in the startup space for a little over 10 years or actually even more than, yeah, I guess way more than 10 years at this point. Um, and so I've seen, uh, you know, really tiny startups um, to start to scale and then bigger, more established ones and helped, helped them to, uh, to scale. Um, I, at least two of the startups I've come into, I've doubled the team in size that first year, which is always uh, an exciting um, adventure to be on uh, from a recruiting standpoint, but also from a, a people standpoint. Uh, and then I've actually been a part of three successful uh, acquisitions as well throughout my entire tenure. So it's been a wild ride so far, lots of learnings, lots of, um, hey, I'll do it differently next time kind of thing. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've touched on kind of every gamut of that that journey, right? From that that early stage right the way through to the acquisition. And I've been through some similar stuff myself. And this is why I'm probably going to end up going over if I don't if I don't sort of put my questions down a little bit. I've got so much to ask. Um, cool. Okay. And uh, so you're currently at uh, Smile. So um, as I remember, as I as I've been told, um, founded in 2020. Uh, 2012 but there was a major rebound in 2017 um, and now it's one of the biggest sort of reward programs in, in the e-commerce space bit yeah. massive space that so could you tell us a little bit more about smile what you guys do how you do it and what your mission statement is yeah, so Smile helps small and mid-sized e-commerce companies to drive repeat sales through our loyalty program. So think about this like we're the Starbucks VIP, but for e-commerce. So most of our customers, um, we actually call them merchants, um, are wearing so many different hats. So what we're trying to do, kind of our value prop to them is to make the product as easy to use, but also is going to scale as they scale and, and as they grow. Okay, fantastic. And I know that's a big, uh, that's a, a very big space, right? E-commerce, like, so is that, is that a global kind of footprint or is it certain locations that you focus on? 
Yeah. We actually support merchants all over the world, um, which is actually why I'm so excited about kind of our staff being located um, all over the world as well. So we, yeah, we have, you know, small merchants that are just starting out, you know, their, their very first business um, and they might be in, um, you know, in India and in Europe in you know, South America, North America, um, a good cohort of course is in, in Canada as well. You know, Shopify being one of the biggest, you know, players uh, in the e-commerce space is very, you know, is, is very big in Canada as well as in the U S too. Okay. Fantastic. And so you've recently Join see um join smile within within the, the past year right so what what is that what drew you to to smile in the first place yeah so um I was coming off um, a previous e-commerce company that had just been acquired so I kind of understood the growth that was possible in this space and and so kind of smiles um you know growth kind of trajectory and kind of what um, the potential I saw that the company had to really become um, even more successful in the the loyalty space uh, was enticing to me. And then the other part I would say is um, smiles, just global, you know, global footprint, global presence. So when um, I was interviewing with them, they were in 15 countries and now we're in 19 countries. So we are kind of the embodiment of distributed. Uh, I had never worked for a company that uh, supported that many countries so I was like hmm this is a new challenge like I, I could do that you know like the the biggest I think I had supported previous was five countries so um, I thought it would be a, a new um, kind of brain puzzle to, to solve actually. So um, so you've been with Smile for uh, coming up to what nine months now so I'm assuming you have a kind of a short-term plan as well as medium long-term plan so what's the what's the first thing on the menu for you you know what, what what's your plans on the people side for, for the next stage of yeah. So I think the first, I mean, honestly, first and foremost is how do we continue to build community? You know, being remote, it's very easy to get heads down. Your work can be very siloed and you can start to become really absent from the culture or even, you know, a new hire coming in. You just don't know how to even like get into it and start to participate as much. So I'm trying to find specific ways to connect folks together um, and, and start to build that community up. Um, it could be, you know, it could be very hobby driven. We have, of course, virtual events as well, but just really trying to think of different ways for, for that community to keep going and, and building. And then, you know, along with that, you know, the company is moving into, you know, a bigger size. So um, it's, it's going from kind of this scrappy startup to this, I mean, this scaling startup that needs additional processes and policies. Um, you know, a lot of folks were not distributed beforehand. Now we are. And uh, a good example of this is people were told just to kind of use their best judgment uh, when buying a new tool or, or kind of, um, you know, really purchasing anything. And so now I'm kind of putting um, just more guidance and documentation around uh, budgeting and just around just general processes as well um, so that we can all, you know, live our human value uh, that we have over here at Smile. Okay. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's quite a common occurrence, isn't it? When an organization gets to a certain size, it's yeah. more the, the the method of communications, the the tools, and uh, sort of the way you organize is more of a blocker to the culture than actual thinking about the culture, good or bad. Um, yeah. I, we, we had the same issue with uh, in a, a company that we used to work with, where the ecosystem had about three hundred and fifty tools. You know, because everyone used their best judgment and had this discretionary. Budget. And that makes sense when you're bootstrapping, right? But when you're yeah. kind of sort of scaling to, when you're in that scaling mode, um, 
it's a Venn diagram with 300 intersects is probably not a very good way of moving forward. Okay, that sounds really interesting. And obviously there's such a, an overlap, not just with our customers, but with Seed ourselves. We, we're fully remote also, and we have the same issues, you know, and the, the, what rituals and ceremonies can we uh, engage in all over the world that makes us feel like we're right on the other side of the desk, you know? So there's, I don't have any solutions, <laughs> just, just problems, but uh, it is, it's an ongoing, uh, I think, um, uh, issue from a lot of companies just now. And, um, and what's after that then? So let's say, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of geared up for that scale mode, you're, you've got the processes in place, you know, what, what's the ideal long-term plan for, for Smile for your people strategy? Yeah, I think the other thing that we're we're thinking through, um, besides even thinking about kind of building community, is um, the different ways that we can continue to support the team. So uh, one thing that uh, is actually currently going on is manager training. Um, so this is one that um, at a company of smile side, so we're about 50, um, 55 employees now. Um, I hadn't brought in um, a lot of dedicated, uh, like a, a third party dedicated manager training in previous companies. Um, and I was really excited that we could start investing more in managers this early on. Uh, and so I think that we'll do more of that, uh, but also, you know, leveraging, um, you know, unconscious bias training or microaggression training would be really great as well. Um, just taking a proactive approach to kind of building that psychological, like psychologically safe space for, for teams. Um, because as we do continue to grow into different countries, um, different communication styles, different ways of giving, receiving feedback, it's going to be so key to, to kind of helping um, that foundational culture that we've, we've built. Um, and then the last part is, you know, we are we are going to be recruiting a good bit again too. So we're, we, um, you know, doubled the team in size last year and we've now, um, you know, we're kind of in the, Hey, let's see kind of now that all of the team is ramped up, you know, how can we, how can we run from here? And then when do we need to start hiring, um, on the, on the team again? Uh, so we're, we're working on that. Uh, and then the last part that I'm excited about, but also, um, I'm going to have to like adjust it a little bit uh, is a communication workshop in, in general. Again, um, you know, there's, there's definitely many different communication workshops out there, but when you think about it from a global and, and distributed slant, um, it's, it's really interesting to see, like, is this an asynchronous communication? Is this a synchronous one? Like, does this require a loom video? Does this require maybe like a volley back and forth? Like what, what, what do you need to, to do to communicate it? So there's, there's a decision tree in our notion page right now on it, but I'd like to expand upon that too. That's really interesting as well. It's, um, I always find that um, people find that communication is entirely natural. You know, you have your way of communicating. I think as people mature as individuals and certainly move into management, they realize that there's different tools in the toolbox depending on the situation. I think one of the key parts of management training from, from our side is getting our individual contributors moving up into that role to understand that there's not just how you've learned to communicate very well, but in this way, but there's also this way and this way and this way. So that sounds really interesting. And how are you going to implement that? If you don't mind even getting too much into the weeds, please just say, Luke, you're getting too much into the weeds. But how are you going to implement something like that on mm -hmm. a global scale? So how do you know what is the smile standard of communication that works across all of these 19 countries? And how do you know what is more you know, unique to certain locations? Yeah, well, I actually, uh, when I first started at Smile, I did um, this listening tour where I met one-on-one -on -one, um, with every single employee. And we have some employees that are, um, you know, 
all the way across the world. So we, we don't overlap from a time zone. So we did, um, you know, we did asynchronous chats back and forth, uh, but via, via video with a tool. And I honestly want to, um, to do it again. Like I, I really think you should do it like every six months if, if you can get away with it um, or at least a, some small segment of, of a listening tour. Um, but I really want to do that first and just understand the different cultures that maybe I'm not as as aware of or are not as highlighted um, right now and see, you know, are we are we missing anything within our communication that we should really think through and, and, and do. Um, so I want to kind of get in that gathering feedback stage first before I, you know, just, you know, put out a, put out a thing for the team. Um, so one of the blunders that I've had at a previous company where I thought, you know, a playbook that I had at a previous company was going to work so well at this company and it didn't work as well as, as expected. And I was like, I was very surprised by that. So um, I've tried to, in this role at Smile, I've tried to take kind of a step back and um, and really just come at it from a listening perspective before I get into like solutionizing everything. Yeah, that, that whole 30, 60, 90 Michael D. Watkins sort of net value thing that uh, is really, really helpful in that situation. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah. you, you, you touched on the kind of the other organizations and that was something that I was keen to talk about because you have that, what, what I find really interesting about your career as well as, as as well as Smile is that you've been from those 20 to 50 person organizations, but right the way through to that, those acquisition events and all of the due diligence that goes into that and the restructuring and whatnot. Um, could you tell us a little bit about some of the organizations you've worked with and what your experience has been like of taking that scaling organization, working with those, be it a VC, be it a, a, a private acquisition and, and, and helping them through that journey. Yeah. And I, I will say I have never directly worked with the VCs at this point. Like that's the one, one thing that I would like to get more exposure to. It's more on um, the, the founder and the CEO side where I'm, I'm a, a secondary sounding board of, oh, why would you want to choose this, this offer over the other? And then also helping with all of the um, internal communications that go out around, hey, we are going to be acquired. This is what is going to happen. And thinking through all of the edge cases for that. And then also working on, you know, all of the, all of the diligence side of it as well. Um, I think every single one, well, every single one that I've been through has been extremely different, um, you know, especially from like a, a process standpoint, uh, but also um, there are many different ways companies can be acquired. Some are just completely, you know, sucked into the next company. Others, um, you're left as your own kind of entity to do your own thing. Uh, but then slowly over time, you get kind of acclimated into the other company. And um, it's it's almost like it just kind of creeps in. And then other times, yeah, they just kind of... Um, they, they just kind of leave you to do your own thing too. So it's been, it's been interesting to kind of see how each of those acquisitions have, have evolved. But also I think the, the biggest learnings for me is the, the communication piece of how, how it gets communicated, when it gets communicated, and then um, almost like the, the checklist of steps that should be, should be communicated to employees that if they don't get communicated to employees or just even, um, even more of a disaster and and you don't look as organized and you create extra work for yourself in the end too does seem to always come back to good mature comms doesn't it um, yeah. at the end of yep. the day 
I always say that you know an unanswered question is always negative in someone's mind. If you if your boss messages you on a Friday to say, "Can I speak to you Monday morning?" You don't spend the weekend saying, "Oh, maybe I'm getting a pay rise, maybe I'm getting a promotion." <laughs> you you know you sit there going, "Oh my God, something terrible is going to happen," and we can't help it. It's just the way humans work. So, absolutely, just at the right message in the right way, at the right time. And have there been any challenges around that? I mean, are there any individual challenges around? that you see um, a lot of our listeners could be founders for organizations, maybe a little bit uh, before the kind of that, that smile where, where they currently are, but certainly that there's a lot of uh, insight that they can get from this type of experience. You know, what would you say are the key challenges around the comms when it comes to these acquisition events? I, I actually find it really fascinating because there's a like, to communicate or not to communicate um, aspect of it. So um, at, at Privy in particular, you know, we um, we weren't sure about an acquisition for a while. Or we were thinking about it, but then also it was like, well, we could you know go do this, we could go do that, and then um, once kind of we were um, thinking, yes, yeah, we want to go do the acquisition, um, you know communicating it early, um, it could have backfired horribly um, mm-hmm. as well on, on us. And I mean, it could have, because what happens, you know, deals deals don't always go through, right? Um, things, things fall short. Uh, and so uh, that can be really challenging to communicate it too early to members of the team. On the flip side of that, I will say that employees are super smart. And so if you are behaving differently as a leadership team, or if you're putting out, you know, goals um, that are maybe misaligned with what you had previously, or, or just very different than what you've had previously, you're going to have employees that are starting to ask questions. And if you're evasive, or if you, um, if, if you're not as truthful, um, they're, I mean, you start eroding trust, first of all, which is, is never a good, uh, never a good sign, but, um, but there is, it is kind of a delicate balance of when you want to go ahead and tell employees like, Hey, we are, you know, we're on a path to acquisition and this is, and this is why we want to do this. These are the steps we feel like we need to do to get us into a, a good place for acquisition. Um, but yeah, like you, you definitely run the risk of the deal following through and then your employees potentially being deflated as well. So, um, I think that that's the, the toughest thing. Um, you know, some, sometimes it's good to wait until, you know, you have at least the initial kind of paperwork signed before you let the employees know, but sometimes by then even more, more senior employees that maybe have even been through some acquisition before might already kind of see that it's, it's coming as well. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, in terms of, I, I want we touched a little bit on the the fully remote piece, or should I say that everything we've discussed has kind of contacted or touched that that fully remote piece. Um, it's the probably the hottest topic, obviously, over the past two years. How do how do companies reorganize in the modern world? And one of the one of the things that alarms me about these conversations is that employers still think it's their choice whether they go hybrid or whether they, you know, make a capital expenditure on office. And maybe it's a little bit more the employer's choice because they've built habits around the workplace that they don't want to let go of. And they'd rather leave the company than leave that habit, right? Especially if you have kids or whatever it is. So could you tell us a little bit more about your decision to go fully remote? What were the pros and the cons internally? You know who, not who in particular, but you know who in within the organization were maybe detractors, who were you know promoters. Could you just tell us a bit about that decision making process? 
Yeah. And I think this one, this one was, a, I mean, it, it is a challenge no matter what, kind of deciding if you're going to go you know, fully remote or even, even go hybrid, um, you know, because you're going to have some of um, just the old, old guards so of people that have been at the company for years who are used to an in-office culture. And they're either going to make the transition with you and it's going to go well, or they're going to make the transition and maybe it doesn't, maybe it's not what they want to do and, and they're going to, um, to, to leave. Uh, I actually, I'll give an example here where, you know, we've, you know, we've hired a ton of, a ton of people this last year and some folks had um, been at a remote company before. And then also some had never been in a remote company before. And we're like, I'm just going to try this out and see if I like it. And very early on, like within the first three months, one, one of one of them actually came to me and was like, I just don't really want to be in a remote company. Like I, I, I find it really challenging to do my job this way. And like, we of course are not changing our, our direction. Like we are fully remote. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we're trying to do with kind of this distributed team is hire the best talent, no matter where they're located, um, which, which, I mean, kind of puts us at it, um, at remote by, you know, remote by default at that point. Uh, but I definitely think there is, um, like people just kind of like testing out the waters right now to see if they want to do remote. And, um, I mean, I know I was in that boat, you know, I, I, uh, I always had kind of that safety net of having an office I could go to. And now I have, I don't have that safety net as well. Like, I like, don't have an office where I could be like, Hey, can we just meet for a minute? Like I have to, um, you know, schedule a zoom or do a quick, you know, do a quick Slack huddle as well. So, um, I personally really enjoy it. I like the flexibility of, uh, being completely remote, but also it's not going to be for everybody. And that, that has to be okay as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's a, it's, it's very empowering when it's done right. I think it's that level of trust that each employee gets to squish work into the rest of their lives. It can be very empowering for the right people. Um, uh, you, you've revamped your EDP at the same time as you've uh, rebranded and, and, and worked on these uh, the, this remote piece. So there's a lot of change. How has the remote piece fit into the overall EDP? And what's the strategy there overall? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been um, it's been good, and I think it actually really enriches our our EVP because we have people that um, are, I will say, kind of digital nomads. So we have at least a few at, at Smile that um, really love to travel and have that flexibility where they can be in a few different locations, kind of have their central location, but are able to you know be in you know different areas, and that is mm-hmm. totally fine. Like we're we're more about kind of the output of work than the hours you work, mm-hmm. uh, and so that has been really great for employees for that flexibility. Um, the learnings though on that end as well, and this is something that we're still we're still polishing up, and I think this is a constant thing for us. But because we do um, have kind of that level of flexibility, um, you know, it can. Like the work, the work in, uh, and the life side of it is just completely blended, which again, like I think is really fun and I, I really enjoy it personally. Um, but I also think that some people coming from even more like traditional corporate companies, um, it's an adjustment period for them as well. You know, like, so somebody will see, you know, Hey, I'm exercising from, you know, one to one to two or like one to 145 or something like that. And, um, and 
that can be jarring for some people uh, being like, oh, like you're doing that during the middle of the day. Like, uh, but it makes, it makes sense for me. And I have that flexibility to do that. I'm still getting all of my work done. Uh, and so we want to make sure that employees um, communicate kind of what, you know, what they're doing and making sure like the output is still there, but also um, they're not kind of going on the other side of the spectrum, which is, you know, working, you know, enormously long hours because they don't have a physical place to like shut down and then, you know, go and do something else. Cause burnout is real. We just went through a mental resilience uh, workshop and um, there was a questionnaire on it kind of to gauge your level of burnout. And it's funny cause I have the rest of the week off this week. Um, but I was thinking about, okay, like, what am I doing to kind of combat that burnout right now? And then what am I experiencing? So if I'm experiencing, I know other people are probably experiencing as well. I, I hear you. And I, I always like to be as transparent as possible. About that. I've, I've, I've felt burnout and it is a, it's not just a psychological thing. It's a physical thing. Right. And yeah. I, I find like the Cal Newport books, you know, deep work and, and putting a kind of a shutdown ritual in my, at the end of my day, gave me the emotional permission to switch off and then switch my brain into other gears. Yeah. And that's been one of the biggest sort of value, bits of value I've ever put into my, into my my daily working life. Though that makes a lot of sense. And um, so you, you you were talking about the mental resilience and uh, sort of the EVP, the um, the remote piece. I, I find it, it it kind of it biases for efficiencies because if if you're looking at value first, yes, they can get better at their job and then add more value for the same level of effort. Or, and this is kind of what a lot of organizations don't like, talk about, but it's just as important, add the same amount of value, go pick your kids up from school. You know, with that efficiency, it buys you more time to then be a bit, you know, and that, that little sliding scale between extra value and extra time. The point is, is it's not mine as, a, as an employer, it's yours as an employee. You make, move that, that scale. Um, how does that fit into your, you were talking about the EVP and just to tie it together, um, into kind of inclusive in inclusivity diversity um yep. for me that just sounds like a wonderfully safe space to talk about uh, to, to kind of attract people from all walks of life so how does that fit in you don't mind me asking yeah i mean i think that it's been um so i'll, I'll speak from firsthand experience you know, working working parents i have two young young kids at home and knowing that you know i am going to need you know about an hour uh like at the very end of the day, or like even mid end of the day, go to go pick up my kids from school, um, hang out with them, get them all kind of set up, and then I'll, I'll jump back on, um, has been really helpful. Um, another exercise we did though as well was when do you do your best work? And mm -hmm. some people, um, so some people actually answered that they do their best work, you know, really early in the mornings, and other people actually said, you know, hey, I I do my best work, you know, later at night. So we want to make sure that we're actually, you know, embracing both of those as well. Um, uh, we actually have um, you know one one employee that um, they they do their best work at, at specifically at night. So they'll spend kind of that morning with with their kids and then start work at like noon um, as well. So um, that's I think that's been just very helpful and supportive on that end. Um, and then we did put money behind this as well because it's all well and good to start building policies out around. Um, you know, kind of, hey, we have this flexibility, but at the same time, if you're not actually, you know, supporting employees with different kind of perks and, and stipends for this, so that we're saying we're not only just kind of giving you the flexibility, but also, hey, if you want to go take that class, if you want to, you know, go get a massage, like 
we're giving you, you know, funds to go do that, to enrich your life, to support you, uh, to support your wellness, to support, you know, your working, your remote working as well. Um, so I think they have to really go, you know, hand in hand, like not just kind of policies, but also, you know, the monetary side of it. Um, you really can't overlook that part either. Yeah, that makes sense. Just uh, having like a, a tangible commitment from the organization. Uh, every organization has values, but how many of them live by their values? Or, you know, how many of it is words on a website and how many of them really act on those, uh, those beliefs, those values? I think that's really useful. Um, I, I personally, we had, a, we had a budget and I bought myself a nice new pair of running shoes. And that made me feel great for the rest of the month. And the Headspace app didn't. But a nice pair of shoes did, you know, it's did end up short for somebody else, it's the other way around. And I find that really, really valuable as well from a personal point of view. Um, and we were talking a little bit earlier about the, the sort of the changes in, in COVID and whatnot. Um, you know, there's a lot of sentiment um, from employees kind of increasingly driven by a sense of sort of purpose and opportunity after COVID. So I find a lot of uh, a lot of organizations that that have a very, very strong it could be a, a, an internal sort of employee value proposition that they really buy into, or it could be a social um, value that they're adding. Um, but I find that a lot of a lot of individuals are that they want to fold this into their careers. They want to really make a difference in that respect. So um, is there something that's quite effective when it, when it comes to sort of enabling people to flourish in that scale up environment? Like, how, how do you take, not take advantage, that's probably the wrong term, but how, how do you utilize that very positive sentiment coming out of COVID? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, everyone has a different um, passion or, or a different kind of driver for joining a company. And um, I even go back to like, Maslow's hierarchy of needs sometimes because there's definitely people that are extremely passionate about wanting to make you know make the world a better place but mm -hmm. that can be defined in a lot of different ways you know for for me in particular um I don't know if I would ever you know go work at um well I guess I don't know. I don't want to say never because you know you know never do absolutes, right? Um but uh for for companies that are you know maybe bigger kind of completely profit driven, you know, um, I, I, I don't know, like if I would want to do that, but the fact that smile is, you know, really helping these, you know, small, um, maybe in mid-sized merchants, like get off the ground and running, especially with COVID where there's just been so many new e-commerce, you know, websites popping up. I, I find that that is fulfilling enough on the, the purpose side, uh, for me. And then the other thing I think on, and this could just be more cause I'm on the, the people side, but being able to, um, kind of honestly, like being able to be in a leadership role where I'm able to drive pay equity has been really, um, re really kind of one of my passions. So, um, it's not more about kind of what the exact product does for me, but kind of what, what is the impact that I can have at the company? So I think you kind of have to have, I mean, I've been encouraging a lot of our managers to have more open conversations with their team about what are your passions and how can we keep supporting you? Um, we went through kind of performance, um, performance season right before the holidays. And one of the, um, one of the questions is like a, a look forward, kind of what, what do you want to get accomplished? And the, the passion side of it, you know, that gets into there. And, and so um, I, um, I have a new new hire starting soon as well. So I'm going to actually talk with them about, you know, what impact do you want to have with the company? Where do you want to, where do you want to drive the impact moving forward? So it's going to be a cool conversation. I'm really hoping that we can um, make some, if, if not all of those things happen. 
That sounds great. You know, just having such an open, it, it links such a friendly human quality to the business yeah. value, right? Like linking that personal value and impact to business value and impact, I think is, is certainly the way forward. Um, we're kind of tracking towards the end of the chat and we've got into some pretty heavy, <laughs> talk about COVID and all kinds of other things. Um, in, in terms of just like high level people, talent, the world that we live in, like if you had one wish from a genie, you know, you, you rubbed a, a thing and there was a genie came up, you could change one thing about recruitment that's been annoying you for the past 10 years. What would it be? Oh, um, I feel like I could get it on a soapbox and talk about this. So I think, <laughs> for, well, for, for me, there's there's two things that I think have, um, have already started to change. And I'm seeing this in some places, but not others. So one is uh, more investment or more budget in the, the people side. So the recruitment and the people side on the tooling, but mm -hmm. also on the people side. So there are so many different ways to help um, people stay engaged for people, the people and the people function to do their job more efficiently, um, to cause them less stress, to actually help them get more data so they can make more educated decisions. Like you name it, they're out there at this point. Uh, and I think that businesses are starting to kind of get into that wave of, oh, we could give people more budget. Like, and that would be great for the business. It's not less like, flowery thing that we're asking for. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, the, the people function at being treated as kind of a business function and not this like administrative off to the side, um, you know, capability uh, is, is definitely coming up. Um, <laughs> um, it's, yeah. The only other thing I will say that is it's a slight, I, I don't know if anybody else ever feels like this, but um, HR, are, like I do not view kind of HR or like the people function as like the culture police, the policy police. So mm -hmm. whenever I, um, if I've ever gotten into a room and it's like, oh, don't say that HR is in the room. Like I would love for that phrase to just like, poof, go away. <laughs> um, because it's just so, um, it's just not the way I view kind of people in HR that like, hey, if you're, if you're kind of saying this because you think you're going to offend somebody, like you probably mm -hmm. just shouldn't say it at all, right? Like. Yeah, <laughs> like because HR is in the room, so it's it's something that uh, I am uh, drastically or like extremely aware of. Just when when anything comes up like that, and I haven't heard it in a while, but it's definitely something still out there um, that can can come up. So yeah, I totally yeah. agree with you. I totally agree with you, particularly around you know the, there's been that view that um, HR is like an overhead, as you say, an internal admin yeah. piece, or some kind of service delivery, like you know receptionist or a you know, sort of someone who, you know, fixes the lights, um, when in actual fact, especially, especially if you're in a hyper growth business and, you know, hyper growth used to mean 20% year on year growth. And now that's ridiculous. Now we're looking at factors of a hundred revenue growth for these kind of organizations with series A, series B investment. Um, there's no feature in a product that's gonna, that's going, that's gonna have more value than what we do at that yeah. stage of growth. And some organizations still don't see that. Um, so I totally, I could get on my soapbox as well and <laughs> shout at each other. Um, okay, that's cool. And just, just to <laughs> the opposite side. So that was a, like, kind of like a question that annoys you, maybe a negative. What about a positive? Like you personally, you know, with what, what are you super passionate about? It could be recruitment, but just anything else. What's really, what are you passionate about just now? Yeah, um, I'll give a, a personal one first and then I'll give a professional one because I think that's just always fun. So I, I um, from a personal standpoint, like, I really love tea. Like I, um, I know how, how people will drink like 
cups of coffee a day, I will go through like pots of tea in a day. And, um, I find it, uh, in like in meetings or like one-on-ones with, uh, with members of the team, like I just pour a nice cup of tea and I just listen. And like, it's just kind of like that moment to like center yourself again. Um, and I'm unapologetic about that, but I just, I, yeah, people just see me with like a new teapot because I'm, Oh, I'm running late, but I go get this tea. Um, and then I think on the professional side, um, the, I guess like the employer branding is definitely something that I have been extremely passionate for about for years. And I think it gets, um, it gets kind of chunked as like an afterthought sometimes, which is frustrating. Um, I have been uh, a people team of one uh, at, at companies and you just, you can't do it all. And so that's the thing that kind of sometimes falls by the wayside that I would love to not. Um, but uh, that, that's something I'd love to, um, or I always, always love to talk about. So like, if you ever have like a, Ooh, this is a really cool thing or, Hey, there's a trend over here. Like I'll just talk for hours about, about employer brand trends and kind of what, what I'm seeing in the market and what like any of my HR like friends are saying too. So that's your, that's your topic of conversation at (laughs) the bar after work, uh, talking about that stuff and tea. Fair enough. I'm from the UK and we do, we go through a fair amount of tea. Uh, so I'm totally with you on that. Um, well, well, Jen, I've had a, a great time chatting with you. And again, if I don't stop now, I don't think I'll stop. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah. Good luck with Smile. And uh, hope to see you again soon. Yes, thank you so much, Luke. I really appreciated the conversation.